Tonight is, well the plan, plans can change, but the plan is, is that this is the first of a two-part talk. And the second part will be in two nights. Um, and looking at several aspects of kind of the, what you might think of as foundational elements of meditation practice, mindfulness, concentration, and insight. And don't worry if you don't know what some of those terms are. But these are kind of building blocks of meditation, if you will, of many, of many there's other aspects too, depending on the kind of practices you're doing. And so we want to talk about what each of those are. We've spent a lot on mindfulness, so I don't know we need to spend, say a lot more about what mindfulness is, but it's especially, what do we mean when we use the term concentration? There's a range of connotations. What's insight? And it's a big topic. So uh, to go through all of those in really in some, some detail so you really understand it and get a sense of it. And also how they work, how they come together in different ways, how they support, you know, how does concentration work with insight and, and, and vice versa. Um, so my, what I would like to do tonight is um, I want to start by backing up and spend a little time exploring what are we doing? Just what is, what is the, I mean, you'll have your, well, <laughs> Everybody will be here for different reasons and, you know, might have their own aims and their own ideas of what they're doing. But from, a, from the Dharma perspective, what's it about? What's Dharma about? What's, what, why, why do you meditate? What's the goal? When we get clear on that, that will help us then understand why mindfulness, concentration, and insight in particular uh, are useful qualities for us to develop. And so after we explore that a little, then tonight... Uh, my intention is to focus primarily on the concentration side and explore that a little. And then nec the next time would be exploring insight, what it means, different, you know, we'll see about a different, there's, it's not just practice in one way. We don't want to get too complicated about different ways it's practice. We were discussing about among ourselves, we want to keep that kind of simple, but just, just talk about the range of kind of ways to keep it simple and accessible. And we'll talk about how the mindfulness and the concentration support the insight. Tonight I'll say a little bit about what insight is, enough just to have a basic understanding, because I also want to talk on the concentration, how it informs the, the insight side too. So that's, that's the basic idea. So first, again, let me back up. Uh, what are we doing? What's Dharma teaching? Um, I think... You know, um, probably if I were to go around and ask most people here what, their, what their, their goal is in life, there might be people here who have, are quite ambitious, maybe want to be, I don't know, whatever, you know, movie stars, the president, billionaire, tycoon, or so, and that would be fine. And I'm not, and that's fine if that's, I'm not, I don't have a, I'm not making a, a judgment about it. But I'm guessing that most of us, and you can see if this is true, for most of us, we're trying to live and be okay. We want to live and be okay. Now the details are, you know, may vary, what, it, what that would look like. We're just trying to get along and be okay. And we get to see how that simple, how hard that can be. We're all really trying. We may or may not be so skillful in certain areas of our lives. We do the best we can with what we, with what we have. We may not be so conscious of all the forces that are driving us. But when you really think about it, and so you decide for yourself, it's not, of course, I can't, I'm not trying to tell you what your goal in life is, but my experience, I just look at my own life, I'm trying to be okay. <laughs> I don't want to suffer. Yeah. Sometimes we're more successful. Sometimes it's just hard. And so here we are. We're in this situation. I don't know how we got here. You know, what's going on? 
how did this all get started? You know, is, you know who, whose idea was this? <laughs> but we're here. Some, something's happening. And we're in this what you, situation, you call it the human condition. And so the Dharma is then is posing the question or it's inviting us, it's asking, is there a way in the midst of the, just life and the human condition, is there a way to find some peace, some happiness, some that's reliable, that we can count on, that might even be lasting, and a way to start to end our struggles? Can we make peace with life on its own terms? These are the kind of questions that the Dharma is asking us to investigate and find out. It's saying there is a way, but it might not be what's immediately obvious. And in, in a way, it's counterintuitive. And I'll come back to this, but the, the, there's this, this sense, you'll understand in a few minutes, but that the Dharma is, is sometimes called going against the stream. That's a, that's a kind of a traditional phrase, against the stream. Because it's, it's first asking us to take a look at uh, what have we all been doing so far? And how's that working for you? <laughs> That's the kind of the question. And then, and then it's saying, okay, we may have to start going against the, 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 what we've always thought was the way to happiness. That's this against the stream idea. Yeah. So one, you don't have to remember, actually you don't need to remember any of this tonight. Some of you, I know a number of people like to take notes and write it down, that's fine. And you know, please do that if, if, if you want to remember. You don't need to, and in fact, uh, some of the things I say, you can come back to me later and I can give you this. For example, I'm going to just give a, a list here and, and don't worry if it kind of, you don't remember it. One model for what makes the world go round is what's called the worldly dharmas. And it's these four pairs of op opposites that seem to drive, I, I actually want to go so far as to say drive all human behavior. And so you, when I name these, think of it, if you can think of anything in your life that's, that's, not, that's outside of some influence on these forces. Pleasure and pain, gain and loss. Wait a minute, pleasure, pain, gain and, lo gain and loss, uh, fame and disrepute, and praise and blame. That's it. Pleasure, let, let me do it. Pleasure and pain, praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute. Four opposites. Um, those are basically all some version of what we've already been speaking about, avoiding unpleasantness and tr trying to go for more of what we want to happen in life, right? And we're not doing anything wrong. This, this impetus, this force to, to pull away from pain and move towards, towards what we want is deeply wired. It's part of being a living being. You know, um, I, I'm not a microbiologist, so if any of you are, you please you know, excuse me if I don't get this right, but I'm imagining, you know, even if you take simple, single-celled, like bacteria, and if there's certain ones that don't like the light, and you shine the light, they're going to kind of squirm away. Or if you put the right kind of nutrient, they're kind of going to move towards it. Right? They're moving towards or away. It's built in, just, it's, in, it's wired into our DNA, into, it's cellular, into our bones, right? So you're not doing anything wrong. And it, you know, we don't, you don't need, maybe that's enough. Except, we've already said, we're all trying our best. And what have we already talked about? Sometimes, despite your best efforts, it's, life has a quality that's uncertain or unreliable. It's, it's not totally in our control, right? You only have so much control over things. Sometimes you will get what you want, and sometimes you won't, and sometimes you'll get what you don't want. And you can't stop that process. You can't, right? None of us have been able to. In a moment, maybe we can have the illusion of kind of, but anything can happen at any time. 
You know, just tonight, up until about uh, one hour ago, someone else was going to give a Dharma talk on a different topic. <laughs> well, here I am. <laughs> it wasn't bad. It was some, I think it was a good reason. It made some sense. But, you know, you're walking. Gary's, I love the story, that rabbi story. He's walking across, and, and, but he had the wisdom to know, I actually don't know. And, <laughs> you know, so, so you know, this is, we're starting to take a look at the human condition that we're in, right? And, but what we mostly do, I want to spend a little time hanging out here because I think, you know, there's this idea that we can attain happiness by fulfilling desires. And, uh, uh, you know, actually there's a, um, a, misunder- a fundamental misunderstanding in Buddhism that Buddhism somehow says desire is bad. That's actually not true. It's a particular kind of desire I'm going to come back to in, a, in just a bit. It's called craving. When it's like, gotta have. But wholesome desire is actually encouraged by the Buddha. If you didn't desire to show up at a retreat, you wouldn't do it. I'm not saying desire, but it's what is desire that's wholesome and moves us in the right direction that we want to go. And what's the desire, the craving that leads us around like slaves? That's where we get into trouble. And desires, you know, it's, it's, they seduce us by their promise of happiness. If I just get whatever, and then we're, I don't know, we don't, you know. So, for example, I'm getting ready to go on a vacation in a couple of weeks. And I'm going to be away for two weeks. And I'm looking forward to the vacation. And it's going to be really great. I think, you don't really know what's going to happen. (laughs) But, uh, you know, it's, I expect it to, I'm going to go a place I've gone many times. I know it, and it's going to be good. I'm looking forward to it. It's not to say that there's no happiness there. See, another misconception is is that people sometimes think Buddhism says life is suffering. It's not accurate. Buddhism acknowledges the obvious fact that life contains happiness and unhappiness, pleasure and pain. I'm going to also come back to that. All the things I'm going to say I'm going to come back to, I will make it back to them in a minute. Um, So... I'm expecting some happiness on this vacation, and I can look forward to it. It's, in a way, you could say it's like fulfilling a desire, I suppose. But I know that its, it's potential for creating happiness is limited, and I'm not expecting more out of the vacation than it's capable of giving me. That's what we want to see. So fulfilling desires, it certainly can bring its happiness in the moment. You know, this is the good feeling of it and everything. But I don't know about you, but what I found is uh, oftentimes, I, I'll give you an example. Um, so I drive a Prius. It's about 10 years old now, but I got, so when, it first, when it first came out, this is back when there was like a three-month waiting list to get the Prius. And I wasn't even thinking about cars, just going about my business, happy. I don't, you know, I usually drive cars 10 years, 15, if I can get 20 years or whatever. And so I had to like, and then... Uh, my daughter's was in college and her car broke down. So I gave her that car. I needed a new one. And then, okay, now I'm going to get a car. Looked around. I'm going to get a Prius. All of a sudden, I'm craving a Prius. <laughs> and it was this, you know, I just, and I'm seeing them everywhere. I wasn't even noticing them before. And I kind of thought back in, you know, they first came out, they were weird looking. And then now they're kind of cool looking. And when's it going to come in? And I'm just, you know, the Prius. And, uh, when I got it, I think for a couple of days, I was pretty happy. You know, I just get in it and, you know, I'm just, it was cool. And then that wore off and I just went back to my ordinary state of, I was no, I was just about the same amount of miserable and happy that I normally am, right? But it was a great relief because the suffering of the craving had let go. And that was a big, big relief. So oftentimes, fulfilling desire, uh, we pay attention sometimes when you do that. It, it relieves that, the suffering of the craving. That craving something we want to start paying attention to. It really generates a lot of suffering. It's interesting, you know, you can look into, uh, into uh, the media, whether it's print or online or television shows or advertisements. There's, you know, a lot of people are trying to sell you drugs to increase your desire. So, um, you know, it's kind of a two-edged thing here, right? And here we're saying, well, wait a minute. Uh, 
Um, maybe, but let's just not be so automatic and habitual about it. Let's actually see, well, what's the potential for that to, to, to and is there something that's more reliable? Being led around by your likes and dislikes and your desire and having your well-being dependent on circumstances. We mentioned that earlier, that's a conditioned well-being because it's dependent on how your experience. That's a fragile, tenuous well-being. And if you really start to wake up to that fact, it can be a little uh, disconcerting. You know, like we're, we don't have a stable ground to stand on, you know. It can be a little scary if we don't know how to approach it right. Uh, we can't stop there because, remember, this is a practice that's intended to lead to the end of suffering. So if you just stop there, you're just caught in the suffering of it. So we have to keep going. That's why we need to train ourselves, right? Um, there's a quote from the second great Taoist master, Zhuang Tzu. He came after Lao Tzu. And the quote is, let me see if I can remember this. I cannot tell if what people consider happiness is happiness or not. All I, rem all I know is when I consider the way they go about attaining it, I see them uh, swept up, carried along, head carried away, headlong, swept up in the general onrush of the human herd, unable to stop themselves or change direction. All the while they claim to be just on the point of attaining happiness. So you have to see how that lands for you. I think he nailed me pretty well. <laughs> see how that is for you. Can we start to make a shift? Is there something more reliable? So it's not just caught up in the nature of things. So just a little more on this. This is really worth spending a little time. We still have plenty of time for the concentration part. Uh, this is getting into the insight thing. One of the reasons, one of the things you'll see when we talk about insights is we start, want to start to insight is uh, just understanding, having perceptions into things. We have insights into things, right? So there's all kinds of insights. We'll get into that more next time. But one of the insights that we can start to wake up to is one of the basic facts of the human condition. It's called impermanence. Gary was talking about it last night. Uh, in case you haven't noticed, no experience that you've ever had lasted. I don't care what it is. It's all changing. Some of them stick around for a while. It's not permanent. Right? Every, this applies to everything. It's called one of the, it's got this heavy sounding name, one of the three characteristics of existence. But it's true. So it means anything you can experience, know, touch, see, be aware of that can be known in any way is impermanent. We know this intellectually. Even the earth won't last forever. The sun uh, will burn out. Black holes actually don't last forever. Due to quantum effects, they, uh, there's an evaporation. Black holes, after I think it's trillions of years, or I don't know, something like yeah. Even black holes, they don't last forever, right? So uh, we know this intellectually, but we don't live our lives as if it's true. So why is this important, and why is it part of the human condition, and also why is starting to understand it uh, possibly offering us a way out? Because if we say, okay, everything's impermanent, but we still cling to our bodies and our youth, we know better. Clinging to your youth is not a reliable way to achieve happiness. <laughs> Take it from me. Some of you are older than I am. Some of you are younger than I am. I remember when I, used, when I was young, I was a, a very active rock climber for many years. I was a decent climber in my day. I remember I was, I was even old for climbing. I was getting into my 30s. And I was out at Yosemite up in these rocks and we were looking around with some other climbers and some, somebody in my group said, uh, you notice you don't really see any old people out here. <laughs> and then I said to my friend, that's not going to be me. 
I'm going to keep it up. I had no conception of what was coming. <laughs> of what happens in the body. Well, first of all, how your body slows down. Plus, you know, I didn't realize I'd lose all my testosterone. I wasn't, didn't, wasn't that driven to want to get up there and get scared and, and be all macho anyway. How it's going to change. You just, I couldn't have known. Some of you who are younger perhaps have more wisdom than I did at that age. But it's just like, you just think it's going to go on and on and on. It doesn't. <laughs> and so when I look in the mirror, I see some, some old guy looking back at me. And I think, who's that old guy? What happened? Where did my youth go? What went wrong? Well, nothing went wrong. It's just what happens. What's going to happen to our bodies that we all know? This isn't to make you morose or scared. Remember, keep in mind, this, we're, we're getting to the end of suffering part. So just don't freak out. But we want to reflect what's happened. This is the condition we find ourselves in. We're, are we immune from illness? Body's going to get sick. Are we immune from old age? And of course, the big one, we're going to die. Right? It's not just somebody else. <laughs> I remember a few years ago when um, a member in, in my fairly close but extended family died and all the family came in from out of town and everybody was there and they were remembering and my cousins were there and we were looking back in some books and talking about it and boy, people, he died. And I, in a, in a moment of negligence when I wasn't being that uh, skillful and I said, yeah, well, you know, it's worse than that because we're all up next. <laughs> I meant for death. That didn't really go over that well. <laughs> it wasn't received that well. And I realized, you know, it's not like you need to be shoving that in people's face all the time. I don't know, I just wasn't thinking. I said that. But it's true. It's worth reflecting on. I find it quite scary sometimes. I still have more work to do. I'm not going to claim that I I'm, don't have any uh, fear around death. I, I'm not going to go so far. But I also find it in some ways quite liberating. And we could talk more about what's liberating about it, but I'll just leave it there right now. Uh, so we have to find our own relationship. So we know that's the situation we're in. So is just going about our business, led around by desires. And uh, my wife once, when she came back from a, from a she'd been on like a three or four month self-retreat. And she's a longtime meditator also. And, I had, uh, normally, if one of us we go on a long retreat, we, we still call each other once a week. We stay in touch. We're connected. We don't do that so much anymore, go on retreats away from each other, but used to. Came back from the retreat. She had sat in many retreats, long ones. Walked in the door, first thing out of her mouth. <laughs> I, I don't know if this meditation's all that great. <laughs> I said, uh, so I knew right then, okay, it's been, it was a rough retreat. And she said, I mean, do I have to feel everything? Do I have to experience everything? There were some things in there like I didn't even want to know was in there. And then I think she was trying to be humorous, but she said, you know, maybe it'd be better to go through life. And she said it like this. You don't feel nothing. You don't know nothing. And then you just go through life, and all you get is maybe like, just before you die, maybe one moment of, oh shit, and then you're dead. <laughs> And we don't have to go through all the suffering. <laughs> but of course, <laughs> but of course, we know that all the forces that lead to suffering are still working, maybe in unconscious, subconscious levels, or sometimes we're aware of them. So you don't, you don't get out like that. I think she was, I never really asked her, I think she was trying to just be a little humorous in, in that, right? Everything's impermanent. And so then we get really, this is the last piece around these teachings I want to just uh, focus on a little bit. Then this, going back to when I said um, uh, there's a misconception that Buddhism says life is suffering. And it's inaccurate. The word that's translated, and you don't have to know these Pali words, but there is there's a few. Uh, Dharma is Sanskrit, Dhamma, Pali. That, that's a nice word to know. 
Another one is the word dukkha. Dukkha. It's the word that's translated as suffering. It's not, it's not where we're stuck with it because it's what everyone uses, but we want to understand. And if you go, get the Polytext Society's Poly English Dictionary, it's online now, but I have the original book. It's, it's uh, one of these 11 by 14 big pages, 10 point font. The definition of dukkha takes, I think, two or three full pages to get all the different ways it's used in the text and all the meanings. So it does refer to suffering, but a broader meaning, and I like, uh, uh, you could say, unsatisfactory, in that we already talked about things can be satisfying in a moment, but they're not going to ultimately solve our problem or do it for us because no nothing lasts. So nothing you can experience, okay, so it's kind of the bad news. Nothing you can experience is ultimately, ultimately going to do it for you. No experience you can have. That also includes these wonderful meditation experiences some of you have been telling me about too. It's not ultimately going to solve your problem. You need to look for something else. Right? So you could also use the word unsatisfactory or unreliable. There's kind of a, and a matter of fact, the, if you go back to the etymology of the word, it has the meaning of the wheel of a cart that's the, where, the, where the axle goes in is out of round. So the wheels, so what do you get? You get a bumpy ride. Right. That's kind of the, the, the root meaning of dukkha if you go to the etymology. So this is the second characteristic of all things or of existence. Not only is everything impermanent, but there's this dukkha, which is this uh, unreliable and unsatisfactory nature to things because they don't last. And it's suffering when we try to hold on to things, when we cling to things because they don't last. If we don't cling, it's no problem. This is why this whole practice is called a liberation through non-clinging. That's the teaching. That makes sense clear, right? It's not that complicated. It's conceptually simple, not so easy to actualize. That's what the whole practice is about. By the way, there's a third characteristic too. I should add, I said there were three. The impermanence, the, the dukkha, and then the third one is taking that concept of impermanence and realizing that that's also the nature of our own being. That if you look into yourself, your mind, your body, everything that makes you up as a being, it's all impermanent too. Let's just explore that for a moment, and then we'll move on to concentration. Um, we know that whatever you experience, the body's not permanent. We already talked about that. And the experience, even in any given moment, it's all changing moment to moment, right? You're not having the experience now that you had yesterday or whatever, it's changing. Even uh, people who deal with chronic pain often will find that th there's, there's, there's a continuity there. I want to be respectful about that for sure. No question about that. But even it, people often, you know, it kind of shifts, change. There's still a changing nature there. Things change. Our bodies. Thoughts come and go. Emotions come and go. Perceptions come and go. Speaking of perceptions, you ever seen those drawings where you look at it one way, it's, it's a young, young woman. You, look, you shift your perception and it's an, an old woman. Just, so perceptions aren't the same. They can change. It's a big topic. We, we might, probably won't get into on this retreat. Everything you think of. And then sometimes people will say, oh yeah, but consciousness itself, the, the knower itself, okay, that's, that seems to be pretty steady and continuous. Have you ever had general anesthesia? <laughs> this won't mean much to you if you haven't. But if you have, where was consciousness then? It's like the existence switch was shift, switched to off. We can theorize, well, consciousness was, we don't know. I remember when uh, I had some shoulder surgery maybe five or seven years ago, and so and they, I went under a general, and I'm lying in there, and the anesthesiologist said, uh, so I, you know, I'm a long-time meditator, I got pretty good concentration, my mindfulness, so I thought, okay, I'm gonna watch this process. She says, she had an IV, and she says, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, give you the thing, and why don't you count backwards, whatever, from 100, and, and then you'll be out, and everything, and so I'm watching it, and it's like, okay, 100, 99, 98, I'm waking up. 
it's just a, it's just, it's just a weird thing. So consciousness itself, matter of fact, even in our language we have uh, unconscious as part of our language. So, you know, consciousness itself is not so. And then people might say, well, what about the soul and everything? And, you know, we all have different beliefs and everything, but anything that you can have any experience of is changing too. And if we're clinging to that as self, it's a setup for suffering. That's just the big. Sometimes people give this, this unfortunate translation, which is no self. It's, it's not an accurate translation going back to the original Pali, but again, it's just what everybody uses. But whenever you hear that, don't freak out about it. It just means what I just said. We all exist, isn't it? It's, not, it's just the nature of yourself. It's, it's just a changing flow, flow. It's changing, changing. That's all. So this is the situation we find ourselves in. And this is why then I hope, just to kind of summarize that whole piece, I, I, my wish is, is that you would agree with me that to deepen our capacity for non-clinging would be in our in best interest. That when we find ourselves clinging for anything, trying to hold on to any parts of our own being, any experience, internal, external relationships, it, you, it doesn't matter, anything, if we're clinging, uh, it's, a set, it's either suffering or we're setting up, planting the seeds for suffering. And so you could look at this whole practice, and actually it's talked about is a liberation through non-clinging. What will support us to live in a way where we can liberate our minds from clinging? But I have to clarify one last thing. I realize we don't want to misunderstand what we mean by clinging. Clinging doesn't mean I'm disconnected or disassociated. What is it we're doing here in meditation? We're not disconnecting from ourselves. We're closing our eyes. Sometimes you have your eyes open. And we're bringing our attention inward and very purposely and powerfully connecting with ourselves in a deep way. It's not disconnecting, we're connecting. This is about a practice of connecting, not clinging, right? Learn, so, in the, so for example, if, I, if you tell a loved one that you're, discon, you're not connected with them, I don't think they're going to appreciate that. <laughs> if you tell them you're not clinging to them, they may very well be very appreciative of that. You feel the difference? So we're waking up to the experience of what's happening in our lives more and more, learning how to be present with ourselves, all in the service of non-clinging. So what does a life of non-clinging look like? We've all had moments of non-clinging, but you probably don't notice a lot of them. There's lots of times when you're going through life and you're, 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 you know, you're, you're, you're at peace. We're learning to expand that circle to encompass more and more of our life where we're not at the mercy of or jerked around by things and we're able to rest at peace. That's the non-clinging. So some of you may have found, maybe for example, you come on retreat and you sit to meditate and the first thing is, this, oh my God, it's the first morning, I'm not gonna make it in my knee. And, and then you find maybe after a few days, you, you're able to, you know what, there's still a point where you're gonna wanna stretch your knee up, but you find, you know, I'm able to actually sit with this, it's still painful, I'm all right. We're learning how to let go of clinging around that and find a relationship our well-being is not tied up in making the knee pain turn into pleasure. We've shifted our relationship with the experience. And that's where we look for the happiness. Not, it's, we, we don't only look for it in having or not having some experience. We, we don't have to throw that away. But we add the piece of, can we start to shift and look for our well-being and how we relate to whatever's happening? And we can start to meet life with quieter minds, open hearts. And when we're non-clinging, we tend to be less reactive and more wisely responsive in life. We don't become less connected. We're more engaged. Things matter to us even more. We can care about others and what's going on in life and the world even more because we're not so self, uh, we're not so caught in worry. We're not afraid of, of what might come to us because we might have more of a confidence not an arrogance, we don't want to, I'm not talking about that, but just a, a sense of stability 
to know, you know, I, I do have some tools. I have some limits. There's an edge to that circle, yes. But you know what? I have some tools that can help me meet life. This is what I want to offer as a way to think of this whole Dharma, right? That's what I want to offer. So then the question is, what will help us actualize this more in our lives? This is why we come and do things like meditation retreats. Because we want to cultivate certain qualities we see we need to support us so we can really do it. Right? Because as we've been saying, I think I kind of got laughed the first night or whatever, but I said, you know, you come and we say don't cling. And you, I wasn't going for a laugh, but you, you soon find out uh, you can't do it. And then I said, well, of course, in a moment, but it's not so easy. What are some qualities of our hearts and minds that we can cultivate that can help us? Not only while we're on retreat, but then help us deepen this as part of the ongoing trajectory of our lives. It's the things we've been talking about here. It's, a, I like to say, a kindness. We call it loving kindness, compassion, a good heart. That's what we've been doing in all these Brahma Vihara practices. And there are some people here where that's really very, very foundational in, in their, all, their whole meditation practice, right? So that enables us not only to, to, to treat other people more kindly and ourselves more kindly, but it also allows us then to bring that kindness to meet this changing flow, this world we, f we find ourselves in with more of an open heart. So that's an important quality. Mindfulness. Remember, if we don't have mindfulness, we're just lost and caught up in things. If we can be more present and awake to what's happening, we start to have some choices. So that's the mindfulness piece. I'll say more. And then also, what I'm going to spend most of the rest of this time on, this concentration and insight. The insight piece, which is, by the way, in our tradition, this kind of retreat is typically falls into a fam. Well, it's kind of a hybrid because we're bringing the, 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 the compassion. So that's the, the kind of the, the heart piece and the wisdom piece. But so it's, this isn't exactly accurate, but sometimes these kind of retreats are called insight the word in Pali with a V, Vipassana, insight meditation retreats. They're focusing on this insight. And that is basically for now, leave it as one of the tools we want to strengthen is coming to understand how we create suffering, how we respond to suffering, the ways our mind, those patterns and how we work, and coming to know how we can learn to let go of our suffering. That's, I'll just leave it at that. It's, it's kind of simplistic, but that's the insight, so we need those tools. Mindfulness is necessary as part of that. So mindfulness is, 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 is essential in the service of insight. Again, we're going to come to that in a few days. Insight also supports mindfulness. It actually works back. It's, it, it, it's like uh, they're all, you can't have one without the other. But more on that. But before we come to the insight piece, we also, what's this concentration we keep talking about? Right? So let me say something about it tonight. This is also very, very important. So have you ever... Well, I already know the answer. This is a rhetorical question. <laughs> so I already know the answer. Have you ever undertaken a really wholesome, beautiful, sincere intention in your life that I'm going to be more mindful. Gary was talking about it last night. I like the way he said he woke up two weeks later. That was even better than my example. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to try to be mindful. So how am I going to do that? When I'm driving in the car, I'm going to feel my hands on a steering wheel if you're fortunate enough uh, um, to have enough privilege in this world to even own a car. That gets into another topic. But as I walk down the street or at my work, I'm going to feel my feet on the ground. If I take a phone call when I lift up my phone, I'm going to feel the phone in my hand, mindfully listen to one of the rings before, and you know, and these are going to help support me. Or I'm going to put little yellow, I know some people have done this, little yellow stickers, stickies all over, and everywhere I look, I'll see one, it'll be a wake up. It's great, and you go about it, and then... Two weeks later, <laughs> you remember, and, you, and all of a sudden it strikes you. After the first day, I don't even see those yellow stickies anymore. If that's happened to you, you have experienced 
mindfulness without the support of concentration. Our minds are too... When our minds start to steady and be more present, that continuity of mindfulness, the, the depth and brightness of mindfulness, as you'll see, some of you already know this, it, it just gets illuminated. Not, so the continuity of our presence is naturally strengthened because our minds are naturally not jumping all over the place. And when we are awake, the level of that clarity and wakefulness is on a whole other level. So what I want to do is I want to first kind of define what I mean by concentration. Then I want to talk about uh, some of the ways it can start to manifest, and a number of you have already been reporting it. Uh, you'll, you'll recognize some of the things I'm saying. Others of you are still thinking, if you know, don't get start when you hear this, uh, you know, you may be having a different experience. Then it's very important for you what's important in the service of non clinging, which is really what non clinging is not only the fruit of the path, it is the path itself. So your job, if you're not having any of these wonderful things I'm about to talk about, is then to notice what happens in your mind and come back and get interested in not what somebody else is having, what's actually happening for you. And is there clinging or not around that? And don't worry, everyone gets tastes of concentration. I've never known a person for whom it didn't happen. And I've been doing this a long time. Even you. And I already know your story. You know, I can't. And I'm I've got um, ADHD. Just don't worry. Just trust me. Okay. So the word that we've translated as concentration, it's actually another word I don't care for. But they didn't, you know, uh, ask me my opinion when they were coming up with these words. But it's, it's, it's got too many, it's got a lot of baggage, that word concentration, a lot of different connotations. The word both in Sanskrit and Pali is samadhi. Samadhi. It actually means undistracted. Undistracted. So anytime someone uses the word concentration, and I'll continue to use it because it just it flows easily because just to say it, I mean undistracted. In, as we see when we get back to talking about insight later, there is a no Buddhist teachers say, be distracted. Everyone agrees with the importance and benefit of, of being able to just really be present in a mind that, not in a struggle, but in a relaxed, natural way of just being here. Right? So we, we're not habitually on automatic pilot reactive. I actually have some choice in how I respond. And I can use this presence in different ways. So the ability of our mind to be undistracted, it's universal about how valuable that is, and you, I'm sure you can appreciate it yourself. What that undistractedness looks like and how it fits in with insight meditation and mindfulness is a huge range of views. I don't want to go into that tonight, and if any of you are interested, uh, I was debating, they, they have a book that goes into this topic. It's, not a, it's more of an academic-oriented kind of book, and it's not for beginners. I'm still debating whether we'll put it out or not. Maybe now that I've said that, I will. But um, you're welcome to explore that more. A few people have read that book. It goes into the, uh, really into detail. I want to keep it very, very simple tonight. You don't have to remember anything. This will just be easy. At some point in your meditation practice you will begin to have what the, your first, what I call your first aha experiences. You keep hearing that something's going to happen. I mean, of, you know what I mean? Something's always happening, but you know, what's gonna happen when I uh, go deeper into meditation? What's the experience? I remember when I was a new meditator, I'd see them all there. Of course, I, w I didn't know. I'm sitting around here struggling with knee pain and a mind that won't settle down and poor self-esteem, and I look around and, Everybody looked like a Buddha, and I just thought in my mind, like, look at them all. Everybody's blissed out but me. I didn't know. Now I know how it is. So, you know, it's different for all of us. But at some point, by doing these practices, we, something happens. 
How did it happen? It's not just one way that the mind starts to settle. There's not one practice or technique. We're offering kind of a, a, a broad general instructions here in the hall that, that work well for most people. And then individually, there's some people who are going off in different directions. There's lots of different techniques and practices. But for most people, what we do is we're using mindfulness. So mindfulness is not only being present, knowing what's happening, but we're actually using our mindfulness to direct our, that mindfulness in a very specific way to connect mindfully with some simple meditation object like our breath, for example. And so by using our mindfulness in a specific way, so this is the very first of the ways that mindfulness works with concentration. There's a lot more ways. But it's, it's important in the cultivation of it. We start to keep, we keep coming back. We keep coming back. We wander away. We don't have any undistractedness much. Keep coming back. And then it's just kind of, magical, it's not magic, because we're just training the mind, but it can feel like it. Someone was talking to me today, a number of people actually, about, uh, she was one of the, uh, one person in particular who was just in this beautiful place, and was talking about, you know, one of the ones, beginning, first retreat, when you said a third of people in hell, that was her first day, she was just glowing today. Glowing. Something shifted. It's that repetition you come back and it's strengthening, it's training the mind. And so it shouldn't surprise us then that uh, we've spent a lifetime being distracted. Shouldn't dist- uh, it's a lifetime training yourself the quality of distractedness. So it shouldn't surprise us then we start to purposely with mindfulness train ourselves in a different way. It doesn't take that long. It starts to train ourselves and the mind starts to settle a little. I call those the first aha experiences. And generally, I'll name a few of the, of the kind of common ways that it might manifest when this starts to happen. But I want to be really clear, and so if anybody's spacing out, I hope I can get your attention so you at least hear this. Uh, uh, it's highly individual. It's not just one way. And what I say may not exactly match your experience. And that's, as a matter of fact, you're welcome to come chat with me about it. It might be interesting. If, but... Often it has a feeling that we just notice that um, there's a sense of calm or stillness or peace, even a little bit. But I mean, you notice it's like, wow, this is a shift. Oftentimes, usually it's kind of very pleasant. We like it. This feels good. Maybe our minds feel a whole other level of clarity in our awareness that, we, that perhaps had been completely inaccessible before. So the, the clarity of wakefulness is there, our minds are brighter, we really are aware of things on a whole other level. Even in the beginning, peace, calm. Some people start to have very strong visual images, sounds, maybe inner sounds, and uh, some people have uh, pleasant feelings in their body, or even a sense of energy starting to move in the body. Uh, They can be very pleasant. Um, uh, And all of these things will continue to strengthen so I, anyway, some people feel very expansive. I remember times, this hasn't happened to me for years, but once I was sitting and meditating and I tend to keep my hands on my thighs or my knees. And the feeling of my hands being, I mean, like five feet across was just so palpable and strong. And I knew, not I was very, very deep in these things, but and I knew it, it didn't really happen, but it was so strong, I thought, well, maybe this is one of those like stories you hear of some, you know, it's, no, it's not, but you know, maybe there's something happened. I kept opening my eyes to look. <laughs> I mean, for real, it's like it wasn't. And, and I've heard other people report this, and I would come, so stuff happens. People can feel expansive, right? So there are other things that can happen too. I want to say sometimes as people start to settle, it can bring up challenging things too that were maybe kind of hidden under, under and energy releases can happen. And there's other things too. It can all be worked with. So it, it, it's kind of a mix, but what, for a lot of people what happens, those kind of, uh, like my wife, she was probably, she, she had actually gotten a very deep and then some really deep uh, old wounds and traumas and abuse stuff had come up for her. That's right. But it, so it can, it can also bring up things that had been hidden 
which will then be in the service on the insight side. This is another way where the concentration supports the insight because things that have been covered over, now we can be aware of and of course we need to know how to work with them and we'll, we'll get to that. So we start to settle in. What was hard now is necessary, isn't necessarily so hard because the concentration, the samadhi, is doing some of the work for us. Right? And one of the things, I don't want to get into too much tonight, but as it strengthens, we want to learn this idea of the, the right tension between not too tight and too loose. The right effort when our, we didn't have the support of the concentration is different because when the concentration starts, we, we need to do an ever lighter touch and you'll start to notice if I keep the same amount of effort, it feels like too much and you get tense. And I want to let go into its own momentum to carry me deeper sometimes. So that's, anyway, I'm not getting too much into all those details, but those are practice kind of questions. We'll work, that's what we work with you on in interviews and stuff like that. We may say a little more about it here. So these are the kind of things that happen. Along with everything I just mentioned, uh, I, some people call that, those are the goodies that come along with it. All the good stuff. That's kind of a, not really supposed to talk like that. But, you know, you understand the pleasure. Uh, well, but I should say, that pleasure has an important function. It's not only just what happens, but it has an important function to help draw us in more intimately with the breath or with whatever's happening. And so we can use that pleasure if we use it skillfully. Now, what, what's going to happen is, let me just warn you ahead of time, I remember being on a retreat in my early days. It wasn't my first retreat, but I already knew about samadhi. But on this one, I was get, touching into new territories, even deepening, and it had gone beyond my even best expectations. So rather than being like, okay, great, I'm satisfied, the, this is how defiled my mind can be. Um, uh, with this tone of voice, the words more came up. What had been wholesome, which could support me in bringing a depth of clarity and presence and undistractedness, had become corrupted. And in, instead of freeing from clinging, it was increasing craving. Look, it happens because this stuff feels good. It feels good. Of course you want more. The Buddha said that this pleasure... He was talking about particular meditation states called jhana. Don't worry about what that is. It's just pretty deep states. He said it should, be, it should not be feared. It should be cultivated, pursued. He basically was saying you should go for it in formalized language. But we want to hold it with wisdom. The question is, how do we get it without craving it or chasing after it? How do we hold it with wisdom as a tool to help us as opposed to uh, corrupting into just, because there are many people, it's very common for people to meditate just in order to have more of those experiences. It happens probably to all of us, probably going to happen to you. So, and then you know what? And then we, we cling. It's impermanent like all experiences. It's not going to last. It's going to go away and then you're going to suffer. And you learn. Ultimately, we find, I'm getting a little ahead, the liberation through non-clinging, the mind of non-clinging, when it really becomes alive and awake and carries through your day, doesn't matter if it's ordinary consciousness, meditative consciousness, it's subtler than the bliss of concentration, much more satisfying. It's a quiet peace. And all that other stuff that you used to want, the bliss, oh yeah, I keep hearing about this bliss, yeah, that's for me. It's too much. You want to settle down. Just rest at peace. So ultimately, what we chase after around this samadhi, which is, and, and you can go for it for sure, but uh, ultimately, um, we want to drop it away. And it just naturally we see, uh, you, you don't want it anymore. What we want is the, lib is the mind, the freedom, the inner happiness that comes when, we, when, we, when we're living in, with our, our open hearts, with this, it's a cliche to say inner peace. It's a cliche because we say it, but that's really where we're ending, heading for. And it's accessible for us. It's not about having or not having any experience, and that includes meditative states. So having said that, we want to cultivate these meditative states because they're wholesome. So that, again, you get what I'm saying, we want to hold them with wisdom.
And so we want to understand that along with the pleasure that can manifest in all these different ways, right along with that is the clarity of an undistractedness. So if these experiences start to happen for you, don't push them away. You don't have to pretend that you don't want it. You can, uh, several people here, I've already said today, I want you to really spend some time and, you know, don't get into craving, but really work in a way that can deepen this for you. So we can then have this tool, right? But what, when those things happen, you don't have to deny the pleasure or even that you, it's something you want. But notice, I'm inviting you when it happens, check in once in a while and notice that along, along with whether you see lights or hear sounds or feel blissfulness or it's just calm, there's also just a clarity of mind. That's actually what's most important. It's the clear, bright presence, undistracted presence. They're not the same thing. One way to think of it is, of a concentrated mind, there's the clear, present, awake mind, and there's the contents of that clear, awake mind, which might be all the bliss and lights and expansiveness and everything. You get what I'm saying? They're not the same thing. Don't stir your mind up looking too hard. It will be obvious to you. But just notice, it's right. You can be aware that your mind is bright and clear and is aware of things, even naturally. You don't even have to go looking. When something arises in your mind, in your body, you could do what our instructions have been. Put your attention there and go. And you want to keep that tool in your toolkit. And there will be times when you don't have to go looking. It's just known because your awareness is so clear and heightened. Something arises, an emotion, a thought. Perceptions come. Some of these insights we were talking about in the ways that we create suffering and the way out that we'll get into more next time. Just even without doing some kind of practice called insight meditation, and and again, we don't want to throw away those practices, but also just as a fact of being concentrated. Those insights can just oftentimes just come because we're so present and clear. We just see, perceive things so much clearer. And anything will do because all experiences are impermanent. And anytime you cling to anything is a source of suffering. So that's just a fact of anything that's happening. So just being more present and awake, you naturally are aware of what's going on. That's a characteristic of all experiences. So that's one of the ways where concentration naturally gives rise to insight. And then there's all this other stuff we actually can use our mindfulness to direct towards insight, and that's going to be a whole other thing, which is really the big, big, important piece. So you're getting the basic idea of this undistractedness, this concentration? So... Uh, it's exactly been an hour, so I did a pretty good job on time. But I would like to just, uh, just one other piece I'm just going to put out there that's important. And this is going to be super short. That's basically what I wanted to say tonight. So this undistractedness can manifest in a lot of different ways. And one of the things that we'll be talking about later and don't worry about this, but it's just to know that undistractedness, this concentration, can, can open in a way in which we actually become less connected with ourselves, and it can manifest in a way that enhances connection. We want to aim in a way where the concentration enhances connection. So don't worry about that, but I'll, this is simple. This is what I mean. If these... Uh, experiences that are associated with, with, with concentration become so compelling for us and interesting, and they are compelling and interesting, we can become so engrossed in them and we're like, well, we're just as lost in that as we are in anything else we get lost in in daily life. All the sense desires that we're chasing after, it's no different, but now it's just like, you know, I want to go into the light or whatever it is, you know. And then, <laughs> If you were to do that, you wouldn't be complaining. It would feel nice. It's going to be a, it would be a good thing. And there's benefits, actually, to that sort of thing. But my point is, keeping it really simple, is 
we want to also, using our mindfulness, this is part of another importance of mindfulness, to be aware of how we're, not only are we using mindfulness to cultivate concentration, and we're using the clarity of mind as a tool in support of insight and liberation through non-clinging, but you want to use your mindfulness to be aware of how you're relating to what's happening as the concentration unfolds. That's what I'm talking about. And it goes back to this not chasing after clinging because we can get so grossed on repeating, but it's so important. It, we're really disconnecting because then we're not noticing our bodies. We want to be more aware of our minds and bodies and what's the essence of our being. Not less aware because we're so interested in these lights that are, ha or whatever, you know. So we can use the lights to deepen us, but then we'll talk later about how to turn it towards the inside. So I hope that didn't confuse you at the end. I know I kind of glued that little piece on at the end, but just, 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 to, just to notice. Don't stir your mind up about it. Hold this all in a relaxed way. So my hope was that um, that was clear, not confusing. If, if so, great. If it was confusing or too much, um, for real, um, um, just let it go and just come back to sitting with your breath and, and keep it simple, simple, simple. So thank you all for your kind attention.